0: Right on the Nail, with Chris Wright.
1: Hi, I'm Chris Wright, and welcome to this week's edition of Right on the Nail. As you know, each week I'm joined by those in the notes who discuss matters of politics, media business, and lots more. This week, I have the very great pleasure of speaking with Bill Rohde. Bill is the former chairman and chief executive of MTV Networks International. Bill and his team built the global operation of MTV from scratch comprising 200 channels and 20 brands in 200 different countries. He is also a global health ambassador involved with many charities, such as UNAIDS, the Global Media AIDS Initiative Leadership Committee, and the Global Alliance for Vaccinations and Immunizations. Prior to his time at MTV, Bill spent 10 years at HBO as their vice president, and before that, he served in the United States Army. Bill's a veteran of the Vietnam War, and a commander of three NATO missile bases during the Cold War. He's a West Point graduate. His military background is as important as his music and MTV background. Bill, it's great to have you with us. And might I also say, Bill, you were just this week at West Point giving a fireside chat to cadets there about current world events. And you were recently also in a meeting with Fiona Hill, who was senior advisor to the National Security Agency on all matters Russian and Eastern European. And I think it's fair to say, Bill, that through your various commitments, current and in the past, you have a greater insight into what's happening in Russia and Eastern Europe than perhaps anyone that we know.
0: Well, thank you for that, Chris. I I did spend a lot of time in Russia in the 90s and also in Ukraine. I launched MTV in both countries. Bit of a story, when we were doing so well in Russia, Ukraine came to us and said, can we have our own MTV? And I naively thought at the time, I said, well, just take the Russian MTV. But they quickly pointed out that, no, we have our own language, we have our own music, we have our own culture. So that was my introduction to the fact that Ukraine is very much a different country than Russia. Just a quick note on West Point, it remains stronger than ever in producing really the future leaders of the armed forces for the United States. And I had some very interesting discussions there about the Ukraine situation, which obviously they are studying, not least of which is the innovation of warfare and weapons.
1: So where are we at in terms of current military situation, which seems to be right now focused on the Donbass? Who's actually winning in the Donbass and in Mariupol? A bit of
0: conflicting narrative on this one, Chris. It doesn't look like either side is winning. Every day you get different news really on, on everything. The latest is that there were actually four villages just to the north of Kharki. That's just in that north northern part of Donbass. And that the Ukrainians took retook in a counteroffensive. So that was good news for them. But I think the overall picture is that everybody is digging in, and the Russians are trying to launch offensive strikes in Crimea and ISM, which are two very important strategic areas right there leading into the rest of Donbass. But as you know, the Russians have been in the eastern part of Donbass now since 2014. So they are dug in. The Ukrainians have been there also. So we're looking at both sides. There's a conflicting narrative really between the U.S. and the U.K. and uh, Ukraine. Most people rely on the UK as having the best intelligence, but from all appearances from today, it looks like pretty much a stalemate in that particular region.
1: And a stalemate, that's interesting. In terms of the people living in the Donbass, to what extent are they Ukrainians that want Ukraine to win? And to what extent are they Russians that might not mind if Russia wins?
0: You can almost split it down the middle with a vertical line and to the east on the border of Russia you have the population that's very close to Russia. And to the west of that line, still in Donbass, there's a, a, the loyalty toward Ukraine. But it's still a sovereign state, even though Russia declared that it was uh, independent, the eastern part of Donbass. And the uh, Ukrainians uh, very much feel like this is their territory and it's occupied territory. And one of their military objectives now is to uh,
1: reclaim that land. And let's talk a little bit about the current mood in in Russia, following the the May the 9th parade, which we all saw on our TV screens. It was quite a big production, and Putin came out with some major statements. Now we're aware of uh, the fact that the Russian propaganda is quite effective, the government propaganda there, and... So it should be. I mean, the propaganda is pretty effective outside of Russia as well, if we want to make it so. So in a totalitarian state, it's bound to be even more effective. What do the Russian people actually think is happening? And to what extent do they think this war is a very just war? I
0: think it's mixed, Chris, and I think it's changing also.
1: Just on May
0: 9th, I didn't read the transcript, but it seems that there is more of a somber Putin. He mentioned casualties for the first time, which is important because he's telling the nation that there are people that are dying in this war. It may be symbolic, or perhaps maybe not, that the chief general of the armed forces was not on the grandstand there, General Garisimov. So his future, uh, you can have all sorts of conspiracy theories, may be in question for how the war is going. There was also no foreign minister Lavrov on the grandstand, and usually he's up there too. So there was a little bit of symbolism in all that. The other thing, I think the third thing that I take away from May 9th is that Putin didn't say anything about mobilization. And there was a rumor because he suffered so many losses of his soldiers, up to 25 percent of the armed forces are are no longer combat ready, that he would call a mobilization. And that did not happen. The bigger question you raise, however, is what do the people think? And that's very hard to get a pulse on. There are polls, which no one really believes. I mean, can you imagine walking down Red Square and someone asking you, do you support Putin's military operation? Uh, The polls that say he has 70 percent support, I think, are very, very dubious. You could probably separate the cities, particularly St. Petersburg and Moscow, as being more informed uh, than the rural areas. But you could also say that he does enjoy support, mainly because of the fever of nationalism in Russia, particularly with older generations and in the, again, in the rural areas. So I think it's mixed on what people think. We all know about the blackout. MTV had a channel there up until February 24th, really. They had to evacuate 300 people, at least from the office. I think some left Russia. There's also a brain drain, as you may know, of young tech people leaving Russia full stop. So uh, there's a, there is effectively a blackout. State television is the dominant source of information, and that is a megaphone, really, for Putin and the administration. I think that increasingly, and one example is the sinking of the cruise, uh, the Moskva, that parents are starting to see their children, their sons, not coming back. And I think you'll see increasingly awareness that this war is going very badly for Russia.
1: Well, you mentioned war, but right now, as far as the Russians are concerned, it's not a war, it's a military exercise. But if they actually decide, if Putin decides that it is a war, then he will be able to start conscripting uh, soldiers and mobilizing a, a whole greater section of the population. That's correct, isn't it?
0: Well, he conscripts now, I mean, let, let's make no mistake about that, uh, once a year. They are the least prepared, by the way. But by the way, I break down the the armed forces in three categories. Conscription, which are as young as 18 years old. Mercenaries, which uh, Putin has, the Wagner Group, which is made up largely of Russians, but uh, very undisciplined. And then you have the professional soldiers, which have had mixed results. I I suppose there's a fourth category, and that's uh, some of the foreign fighters that have uh, not come to what he has announced that he wanted. Certainly no one from Belarus has come. No one from Armenia has come. There may be some Syrians that have come. But his armed forces are pretty much a mixed lot right now. And there's a lot of morale problems, as we know.
1: And how secure do you think Putin is? I mean, is there any chance that there are people, you say that Lavrov, for example, wasn't at the parade, that the senior military officer wasn't at the parade, Does this show us a signal that maybe there are people there that are questioning the viability of of what's happening and whether Putin's position is not as strong as we like to think it is or he likes to think it is? Yes,
0: I believe that's correct, Chris. You know, traditionally, even back in the Soviet Union days, there were always guardrails. And when the leader was not doing well, they didn't survive uh, in many ways, Gorbachev being only the most recent, but going all the way back to Khrushchev. There's no indication now that anybody's pushing back. And the visuals that we see are quite extraordinary. With separation, he even intimidated the head of intelligence way back at the beginning of the war on on live television. There really doesn't appear to be any pushback, much less any threat to Putin's life. It, It circled himself with a lot of security. So there will be, I believe, increasingly pushback. The military has been humiliated. They've lost upwards of 12 generals, which is extraordinary. And they uh, have to be demoralized. There's no question. The people, as I was saying earlier, as they learn more about the the losses in in their sons, will push back, I believe, too. I don't think there's any particular threat to Putin personally, but um, I do think that there will be more disenchantment as this war continues, because they're not winning. They're simply not winning.
1: But if you want to make an omelet you've got to break some eggs and right now the omelet is the fact that the uh, the feeling is that Ukraine is full of Nazis and full of people that were the the same kind of individuals that uh, Russia fought against in the 41-45 war and that uh, if that's the case in much the same way that we in our part of the west of Europe and in the United States would feel that that war was a very just war if the Russian public feel that their war Against Ukraine is a very just war because they are fighting the same kind of people that we were fighting when uh, with Hitler's Germany. Then there will be complete support and there will be no pushback and they'll accept if we've lost some generals. Okay, that's part of what war is all about.
0: Yeah, it's not a very good symbol to lose your generals because not only uh, do you lose a lot of leadership, but. As Patton taught us at West Point, it's not about dying for your country. It's about the other son of a bee dying for their country. And generals should not be dying for their country. That's that's too much of a symbolism to lose. I do think, again, though, that Putin miscalculated most wars are caused by the way if you look at history by a miscalculation he grossly miscalculated this he's losing and you can argue he's already lost but he's losing in so many different fronts now that's not to say that he doesn't have a huge army of course with a huge supply of weapons that uh, their style is uh, grinding down bombarding and there are really two wars that are happening in ukraine one is on the military and the other is on the civilians He's not winning the military, but you could argue tragically and with unbelievable brutality, he's winning a war on the civilians with so much loss of life. The irony about the Nazis, by the way, and we all Kind of shrug her shoulders about why he kept pushing that line. Of course, May 9th is a is celebration of pushing the Nazis out of Russia. The irony, however, is that Ukraine was fighting that war alongside the Soviet Union and or Russia, and they lost anywhere from five million up to a quarter of a million of their population. So they took huge losses fighting the Nazis. That's why the argument that Putin puts forward is is not
1: very credible. Well, I suppose uh, what what Putin didn't realize is that Ukraine was going to have a president that was very different from the kind of president of a former Soviet state that he's used to dealing with.
0: I call Zelensky Churchill on steroids. He's out Churchillian Churchill himself. And you know, compare that situation to Afghanistan when Ghani left right away. When you when the president leaves, you can't overstate the effect on morale. And the fact that not only did Zelensky stay, but he inspired his people. And you know, the famous quote, of one of many that I love, "Don't send me a ride, send me ammunition," was really a rallying cry. And he has been a, a tremendous not only political leader, but also 24-7 on, on the front. He has a security briefing every morning. He talks to his, his team every day. And he is the
1: Churchill of Ukraine, no question. And very media savvy as well. That he could, He's got a means of communicating that uh, an awful lot of presidents and leaders don't seem to have.
0: That's absolutely true. Well, you know, he, he was a comedian, which most people then, including Putin, I think, underestimated him completely but he's very telegenic, he knows how to work it, and uh, I'm struck by the fact that he has addressed, I believe, up to 20 parliaments, 20 different parliaments. He's constantly communicating with world leaders, everything from the NATO meeting to the G7, and he's getting his messaging across and he's doing it in a very impactful way. He can be tough, he can be tough on some of these messages, but he's defending his country in the, in the way he best knows, which is calling for support and understanding from the rest of the world.
1: And at what point, if Putin feels that he's not making the progress he should be making, at what point does he reach for the nuclear option, even if it's just a minor little strategic uh, nuclear device?
0: Well, this is one of the comments that I, I took away from uh, our dinner with Fiona Hill, which said that we're all looking for reasons why Putin won't won't launch a nuclear weapon. But yes, he could. He asked, He could. I personally don't believe there's anything on the intercontinental ICBM attacking NATO or uh, the West. I, I don't see that. He's not that suicidal. However, as he gets more backed in the corner and he shows no progress in the East, if that happens, he could be tempted to launch a what is called a tactical nuclear weapon. But even a tactical nuclear weapon is devastating. It could wipe out a city, 250,000 people. I mean, what does that give him? He's already become a pariah and he's crossed the Rubicon in, in in many ways. And he would even have more of the world against him if he did that. It wouldn't even necessarily be a military
1: target. It would be more of this brutal war on civilians. So, like uh, if he wanted to take out, you know, it could be Keys or it could be Odessa or, or a key city like that, he could take it out with a, with a, with a strategic nuclear device, it, and successfully, but the end result of that would not make it worthwhile doing it.
0: No, and uh, again, I think he has already lost in many ways. So we are vulnerable to that that sort of uh, reaction. Uh, we hope not. We are, I'm sure, sending all sorts of messages of deterrence on why that is uh, intolerable. But the battle of Kiev was really quite Something And I mentioned earlier, I was at West Point. This is going to be a case history in a confident, aggressive army that proved to be incompetent and complacent and in the end, desperate. And we saw in Busha, in the suburbs of Kiev, just how desperate they were, how brutal, actually criminal and so badly trained and uh, the the mission they had there was no knowledge of the mission even corruption we see pictures of soldiers taking laptops and bringing them home and looting sexual gender violence the whole thing violation of every military 101 training and supposedly Putin spent years not only building up his nuclear arsenal or modernizing his nuclear arsenal, but also modernizing his military. His army was supposed to be the best in the world. They even outran their supply lines, food and storage. They didn't have proper cold protection in Kiev. So Kiev was a humiliation, clearly. The sinking of the cruiser Moscow, another humiliation. He's been stopped in Mikulai in uh, his targeting of Odessa, which is still very much on his radar screen. When I say he, I mean also his military generals. So he has suffered many losses. Now he hasn't suffered a big loss in the East yet because he's dug in, but he's not really winning either. So you're right. The more he goes back in a corner, the greater likelihood that he does something that's completely irrational.
1: And what do you think uh, his relationship is with these key oligarchs now? Are they getting a little bit upset that this thing's still dragging on, that they're still now pariahs in the Western world, they can't use their super yachts, or are they as supportive as he would hope them to be?
0: Yeah, I, I think this one was a bit overstated from the very beginning. We, uh, The West targeted oligarchs and I can understand the logic in it, and I'm sure it has some impact, but they have a bad image. So it's not to Putin's advantage to to really warm up and be buddy-buddy with the oligarchs. I think it's a bit overstated, the influence that the oligarchs have on Putin.
1: So having talked about political strategy, let's talk a little bit about military strategy. So right now, the focus uh, is on the Donbass. The focus has been taken away from Kiev and eastern Ukraine. It's not going great in the Donbass, but He's not going to be happy if at the end of this whole uh, you know, military exercise, he walks away with having taken a piece of the Donbass or even all of the Donbass. That isn't going to play too well with his public back home. The idea is he needs to take the whole country. Also, let's bring into play the situation with Transnistria, which is increasingly becoming more and more important. Now, this is a, a little slither of land on the border between Moldova and the Ukraine, which is Russian speaking, which again is almost the autonomous Russian state. His idea is that he has Russian land running all the way through the northern boundary of the Black Sea into Transnistria. And he might settle for that mighty bill, leaving Kiev and eastern Ukraine by itself. But is that something that's achievable for him? Moldova is uh, very vulnerable
0: to the president. She's, she's sound the alarm bells already. And uh, everybody's got their eye on Moldova, of course, as the next target. Very, very vulnerable. The problem, I see it, it remember, he's lost an incredible amount of his military, anywhere between fifteen and 30,000 soldiers, 2,000 armored vehicles, maybe up to 1,000 of them tanks. He's lost 200 aircraft. The supply lines that stretch to Transistina are even longer than anywhere, certainly much longer than Kiev and even longer than Odessa. So I think he has it in his sights. I'm sure it's one of his objectives because there is a Russian population there along that sliver of of Moldova. But um, it would be, in my view, more difficult because of the length of the supply lines, the the damage to his military, And while he wants to do it, one of the themes of this whole war is really his objectives are not matched by his capacity to pull it off. Now, with that being said, there are missiles as of this week being lobbed once again into Odessa. So he's going to try. The invasion route, from the north has been successfully blocked so far by the Ukrainian Ukrainians, and they've really barricaded themselves from the uh, the Black Sea. But still, he's got that in, in his objectives. I don't think he has the capacity once again to do all three, all the way on the west in Transnistria, the Odessa, and then the east. Right now,
1: he's focusing on the east. He could really bombard Odessa from the sea, couldn't he? And I mean, could Odessa? become the new Marriott pool and be completely flattened to the ground. He,
0: he could, and he's actually using missiles from further away than that. And I think he's firing from submarines when I read the last report. So yes, he could. He could, and he probably will. He already is to a certain extent.
1: So So let's assume when he started this military exercise that His idea probably was he'd take the whole of the Ukraine, he'd get it all wrapped up pretty quickly, and then he might as well take Transnistria as well and maybe Moldova too, why not? That was his plan. Now, he's stuck in the Donbass. You might say... Originally you might say, well, to take the Donbass, you know, I've I've freed up all the Russians that live there, I've liberated them. That was part of the exercise, so we're being successful. But is that going to constitute success for Putin if he walks away from Ukraine having taken the Donbass and not much else?
0: He may be forced to do that. It's not going to be obviously to his satisfaction, and it may not be enough to your point with the population. So I, I think that question very much remains. I, again, don't think he has the capacity to do all that. He did double down, from what I understand, on the May 9th speech, however, by saying this is a liberation of Ukraine, not just the
1: East. Well, that's a very salient point. So he's still talking about liberating the Ukraine, as you say, and not just the East. So what exactly is his game plan right now?
0: His game plan, I believe, is to hunker down, learn from the lessons of the North which was, uh, again, an embarrassment to him, and do what they do best, which is pulverize civilian areas, bring their artillery in as much as possible. Remember, the east is much different than Kiev. There's not the marshes. The muddy season, by the way, is going away to his advantage. So he'll have dry land. He doesn't have to use the roads for his armored vehicles. But this is about a slow, grind, brutal bombardment. And it's going to that's why I believe it's going to take a long, long time. And even if he doesn't win, he'll just keep grinding away because this is what the Russian style is. And he has the endurance to do this. I saw um, the chess player Kasparov uh, not too long ago, where he said that Putin is not a chess player. He's really a poker player. And he has a high tolerance for risk. And he has a, a long tolerance for just Doing what he feels is correct, but not necessarily what his people want. He doesn't have the vulnerability that other political leaders have. He, uh, yes, he has inflation and uh, probably economic hardship coming, but it, there's no election coming, and it's in the, the again the Russian style, really, to do to grind and just go for the long term. That's the way I see the that continuing with
1: Putin. So uh, how long are we going to be where we are right now? Most
0: people here are saying this is going to go on for months, if not years. I can't imagine years, but it's going to be a war of attrition. It's going to go on for, in my view, and from what most people think here, a long, long time. I don't see any anything. Yeah, but this gets to the point, the bigger picture. What is the bigger picture? The bigger picture is everybody's really a loser. Ukraine is certainly a loser. They're going to have decades, decades of recovery and rebuilding from this. A quarter of their population has already been displaced. It's been reported that three quarters of the children have been displaced. There's trauma in their culture, and it's going to take a long time to rebuild. Russia is also a loser. Brain drain of their youth, high-tech population, long-term economic gain, economic hardship. The energy exports will definitely decrease given all the sanctions. Military decimated reputation on the on the world stage. China is also a loser. They are a proponent of open markets, and they're looking at potentially decoupling of uh, globalization, which does not play into their long-term strategy. Taiwan is looking at this very closely, and they're learning lessons as well. Europe is a big loser. Disruption with 12 million refugees pouring in, economic pain, energy shortages. And, you know, we just had this week uh, the latest embargo announced by the EU. The world and Africa could be big losers because of food shortages, wheat, fertilizer, minerals. And this comes after a two-year terrible pandemic. Our fight against climate change possibly is a big loser because there will be resistance now to do the sacrifice necessary for fighting the CO2 emissions. Inflation is everywhere. We're seeing uprising in certain countries, Sri Lanka and Latin America, which may bring uh, also upcoming recessions in many countries. So the world has changed, not for the better, as of February 24th. And I think we're looking at a situation where we have many more
1: losers than winners. So Putin, through his actions, has thrown the whole world into a complete catastrophic situation, fueling inflation, fueling hunger, stopping all of the... Initiatives in climate change. I mean, it's it's a dreadful situation that that he's in, inflicted on the world. Bill,
0: well, it, it is, and one of the big challenges. We're in day seventy-six now. We last talked about this toward the middle of March when it was only three weeks old. It's been in the headlines every day, as we know. However, the biggest challenge, and Zelensky, I believe, senses this. It's going to come off the headlines very soon. I'm I'm already seeing it over here. It's not on the front page every day like it. Used to be. And so you can see Zelensky now upgrading his messaging that, you know, with no ports, for example, on the southern coast, there's no food coming from the breadbasket of, of Europe, which is Ukraine. So this affects not only Europe, it affects the West, it affects Africa, and it does affect the world. There's no question. It's going to get worse before it gets better. So unfortunately, this is a pessimistic uh, outlook, not a very optimistic.
1: Outlook. Well, on the basis that Putin isn't going to say, "Hey guys, you know, I screwed up. It ain't going well. You know, we're going to we're going to pull out." That ain't going to happen. So, what might happen, which could improve things? Unfortunately, this is a military point of view. But
0: the more weapons, potentially, the shorter uh, the conflict could be, unless we escalate. Unless there's an escalation toward what we were talking about earlier. But There is a tsunami of supply coming in. There was uh, yet again another bill that's made through the first stage of Congress here in the U.S. of 40 plus billion dollars. That's a lot of weapons. And there's been a shift from the old Soviet style weapons that Ukrainians were trained on to now more modern weapons that could have an impact and more offensive weapons, not only from the U.S., but from NATO and other countries perhaps as well. So what does all that mean? Again, from a military point of view, and I know it's, it's not necessarily a popular point of view, the more weapons and the more that Russia realizes this is a, an unsustainable effort, perhaps the sooner this conflict can end.
1: And is there any chance of that happening? I think
0: yes, there is. I think Putin already looks different. There's conspiracy a bit on his health, etc. I'm not making any prediction or knowledge that, uh, that that I don't know about, but maybe there is pushback among this inner circle. Eventually, maybe there's pushback from its population to the realization that this is just not sustainable. Now, also Ukraine, the dilemma now, the reason there's no diplomacy right now, zero diplomacy, which is a terrible thing, is because on one side, as we've been saying, Russia has so much vested into this they can't walk away with such loss of face, particularly Putin. Mm. On the other side, Ukrainians have been horrified, as the world has, by the atrocities in Busha, and, and soon we're going to learn more about Mariupol. The mayor has just said he thinks 10,000 people have died in Mariupol alone, and they're buried in mass graves, which are perhaps already seen with satellite images. So when you got two sides entrenched like that, You don't see a quick fix, and particularly since there's no diplomacy. So I'm actually more pessimistic than I was at the very beginning in March, when at least there were people talking on both sides. That's why I think we're probably going to need a realization on the Russian side with this uh, support that's coming in from all directions. And by the way, the unintended consequences are extraordinary for Putin. There was just a a, a security alignment announced, I believe, by Boris Johnson that brings in Finland and Sweden. This looks to be like a stepping stone to NATO. So NATO is going to be perhaps 30 some odd countries now, 32, 33 countries, stronger than ever, more unified than ever. The European Union has made it a little bit slower for Ukraine, but on the long term, there's a road to go into the EU from Ukraine. If not, there'll be some other creative parallel organization, I'm sure, for Ukraine to be even closer to the West. So the unintended consequences for Russia, I believe, could bring at least the populace around to realize this is just not a good thing and, in fact, is a blunder. So maybe Putin comes to a census, but there's no off-ramp. There's no obvious off-ramp for Putin.
1: If Putin's thinking, hang on a minute, I might have made a mistake here, and now what I wanted to do was weaken NATO, I'm going to end up with NATO even stronger, with Sweden and Finland part of it, then should we as the West, and if you, Bill Rohde, were running the whole show for the US and and for the West in this, and you had a choice between we either give Putin something, a little piece of meat off the table so he can walk away feeling that he's achieved something, or should we be saying, we can't allow this to happen, let's ramp everything up and let's send in even more equipment and even down to sending in men. So given a choice, we escalate or we give him something to walk away with to think that he's won a little bit. What would you do? Well,
0: the, the principle of warfare is both, Chris. I'm not evading the question, but I'm saying you do both. You, you, you up it as much as possible to show that it's unsustainable to your opposing force. But at the same time, you open up and you have diplomatic channels. You bring other people in. The the Turks were in that first go around. The Chinese have not been involved. You know, they obviously have a huge influence on Putin and, and Russia. So I would do both. I would up it as much as possible. And that's what the U.S. and the West and NATO are doing. But at the same time, I would figure out a creative way to give Putin some sort of off ramp so this does not... Continue. And Chris, I I do want to also say that the humanitarian effort from Britain and from Europe has been extraordinary in helping this terrible situation of of brutality, principally the refugees, but also the people in Ukraine. And uh, the former general of land forces here in the UK, General Nick Parker, has started a response for humanitarian aid to Ukraine. And for those who are listening who would like to help that effort, he has a website. It's called react.org.uk, r e-act.org.uk, where you can also participate and help the humanitarian effort that General Nick Parker is overseeing.
1: Well, that's wonderful. And finally, last question. If you had to give him the Donbass and a strip of land on the Black Sea as far as Mariupol, as a gesture to stop the whole thing, would we do that? Uh, Would the Ukrainians allow us to do that? Well, this
0: is a very important point, Chris. It it has to be the Ukrainian choice. It can't be enforced on them. Uh, You can make an argument that if there is not a sustainable peace, the Ukrainians are going to be in jeopardy for the foreseeable future uh, indefinitely. The Ukrainians will have to be behind whatever the ultimate Settlement could or could not be if it was me to answer your question, yes, I would give up some because it's de facto very heavily Russian influence anyway. I wouldn't join NATO. Ukraine wasn't going to join NATO in the first place. they can have other security guarantees, and I do think there are elements there that can avoid this tragedy from continuing
1: well, let's hope so bill it's a it's a really. Really devastating situation. I really appreciate your input. I mean, your, your, your insight into this is uh, beyond par. So it's uh, amazing to have the opportunity to talk to you. But you've been listening to Right on the Nail with me, Chris Wright. Thank you, as ever, to my guest, Brill Rohde, for a brilliant and insightful conversation. And thank you to you two for tuning in. Tweet us at Right on the Nail with any suggestions or feedback. And if you enjoyed the show, please share a link on social media. You can sign up to receive an email where the new episode drops at our website, rightonthenail.fm. And remember, there's a new episode every week, so catch you next time on Right on the Nail.
0: Well, wasn't that amazing?
1: It was created and produced by podcast partners. They're really lovely people and rather good at all this podcasting guff.
0: Find out more at podcastpartners.com.